This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 5th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. everyone. We are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 this morning. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, thank you for being here this morning. I sound like Darth Vader, but I'm okay. Um, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to carry me through this and see what he has to say. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who You are and for what You have done. And we are here, Lord, because of who You are and what You have done. Left alone, we are apart from You. Left alone, we are lost. Left alone, we would be in darkness, Lord, but You pursued us. And though we rebelled and were removed from Your presence, Lord, You have done everything through Your Son, Jesus Christ, to bring us back in. And so as we gather here this morning, I pray, Father, we will not take this moment lightly. We'll not view this gathering as routine, Lord, but we'll remind or be reminded that when we gather together as Your people, we gather in Your presence. And so, Lord Jesus, as You are here, I pray You will speak to us. Only You know, only You know what we need to hear. And only You, Holy Spirit, can speak it directly into our hearts. So I pray this morning you will speak what needs to be spoken, words of conviction, words of comfort, whatever it is you believe and know that we need, that we might be lifted up from the pit that we find ourselves in, or we might be the one who lifts another up. Thank you, Lord, for this day, this glorious day that you've created, and speak to us through your word this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So let me give you a little bit of uh, context for this particular passage. If you're new with us, welcome. We're going through Ecclesiastes. We go through verse by verse, and uh, it's an interesting book. Not too many pastors preach it very often, but um, it's because it's a little confusing. Uh, So hopefully we can alleviate some of that confusion. Um, In the very beginning, not Ecclesiastes, but life, creation, the world, the Bible, um, what we see is that God planted a place. It was called Eden. And He created a people to care for that place. 
And then He filled that place with His presence and it says He dwelt with His creation, with His people. He fellowshiped with them, walked amongst the garden with Adam and Eve. And so you have these three things. People, a place, and presence. Now, that's how the story of God begins. That's how the story of creation begins. And if you were to fast forward through and spoiler, read the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, you would see that actually that's exactly how it ends. In Revelation 21, it says, as John is having a vision that is given by Christ, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is about the end of the world. He says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and He will be His people and God Himself will be them with them as their God. So you see that? You have a place, you have people, and you have the presence of God. That's how the story begins. That's how the story ends. But we right now have this guiding vision of what is going to be as God dwells with His people in a particular place that's free of sin. That's, that's what we're headed for. And Interestingly enough, because we are creatures of worship, whether you're a believer or not, um, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes in particular that God has put eternity into our hearts and so that we know there's something more. So everyone knows there's something more. Even if you don't have that particular vision before you, everyone knows there's something more deeply. And so as such, men over time have made their own gods and built their own places of worship where they would pay homage to their deities because they knew there was something more. They knew there was a God out there or some power beyond them. And these structures that were created, these sacred places of worship through which people would appease their gods so they wouldn't be angry or ask for help, those gods were ultimately always silent. Because they didn't exist. But our God was not silent. The one true God hasn't been silent. And so the story of the Bible and God's plan to get to this place where He could dwell again with His people as He once did in the Garden of Eden, going from basically garden to garden, that began with the call of a guy named Abraham, which you may have heard of. And he told him, look, I'm going to build a huge nation, a huge people. A people that I will dwell with. A people that I will love. A people that will be of my choosing. And so before this nation was created, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that they became a people that was enslaved in this Egyptian empire. And the story of Moses is the story of that redemption, right? Of getting freed from slavery. And as they're taken out of slavery in Egypt, it's a picture of being taken out of the slavery of sin. It's the same picture of redemption that we have in Christ. And so he takes them out. They go across the Red Sea, that whole deal, right? And then they go to the mountain where Moses is going to get the Ten Commandments. And part of God's instruction at that moment was He gave them plans for this tent thing. It was called a tabernacle. It was very specific how it was supposed to be structured. And so they built the tent exactly as He wanted. And in the tent were these different 
rooms and in the center of the tent, the most precious room was the Holy of Holies. And that's where the presence of God would dwell in this ark that was created and the Ten Commandments were put in there. And this is where they would worship God. And once that tent was finally constructed, they stood back. Imagine all of the camps of all of the tribes kind of in a big circle and God's tents in the middle. And they stood back and the glory of God fell on it. You read this in the last verses of the book of Exodus, which is the story of the freedom of, from slavery. In Exodus 40, it says, "...and a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle." So literally, it's like, boom! Glowing fire, cloud. They're like, I wonder where God is. He's right there. Right? Everyone knew where God was. And as they moved through the wilderness, that cloud or that pillar of fire would raise and start moving. They're like, oh, God says they're supposed to go. He's going over there. So they would go, pick up the tent and go. And they would stop and they would set up the tent and it would fall down. You knew exactly where God was. You knew exactly where you were going to worship. The presence of God was dwelling there in a very visible form. It wasn't a big mystery. And so this tent really had God's presence in it all throughout most of their history, especially as He led His people to what was called the Promised Land. And in time, that land was conquered, and many years later, a kingdom was established as He had promised a nation. And it was led by a man first named Saul. Saul was rejected because he was a doofus. We'll just go to the next one. David takes his place. King David, famous and wonderful, but also adulterous King David, and he was sitting in his house one day, this amazing palace, and he looked out at this tent, and he went, hmm, I'm sitting in this rad palace, and God's still in a tent. I'm going to build him a house. So he got all excited to build him a house, and God showed up and said, you're not building me no house. I don't need a house. But you can put materials together, and I'll have your son build me a house. And his son was the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon. And so Solomon built what came to the first permanent tabernacle, the tent, or if you will, the temple. The first temple that would be the house of God. And the same thing, very specific instructions. And they built this permanent temple. And in 1 Kings, we read when that temple was finished, same kind of idea. They put the Ark of the Covenant in there, in the Holy of Holies. And it says in 1 Kings 8, and the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of this house that they had built, which was a permanent form of this tent, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherub. And it says, verse 10, and when the priests came out of the holy place, again, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So again, this big permanent house, was like full of smoke and whatever, and they're like, there's God. He just showed up. That was Solomon's day as he's writing Ecclesiastes. This temple built by Solomon, the house of God, was the center of worship in Israel. The place where God had said, my name shall be there. No, the temple could not contain him comprehensively and fully. But he said, this is what's going to mark my presence. This place where I dwell with my people. 
So when completed, Solomon inaugurated with this great prayer and this huge sacrifice. And he even prayed that that non-Jewish people would come and worship there. And he asked God to answer all the prayers that are offered at this house so that, he said, the earth may know your name and fear you, as does all of Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So this is the place where God's people gathered. This is the place where God's people prayed. This was the place where God's people sacrificed. This is the place where God's people sung songs. This is the place where God's people heard God's Word and where they knew He was uniquely present. And after years of religious worship, in Ecclesiastes 5 here, He challenges those who go to the house of God and say, are you entering into His presence rightly? How are you entering into the presence of God as you go before Him? It's the kind of question that we should be asking ourselves of how we approach what amounts to the house of God. How do we enter into the presence of God? Because back in the day, the glory of the Lord was there. And it may have felt easier to go, okay, I, I know who I'm approaching. I know what I'm doing. I know what's happening here. Well, what about coming to church on a Sunday morning? I'm not sure the building's glowing. We don't have smoke machines, so the clouds aren't you know, coming. Do we come here at a routine? Are we approaching it as if there's a tent or a temple that's going, okay, I'm, I'm about to enter into the presence of God. Does that even cross our mind? Or are we just going to an event? And this is what Solomon, the guy who has the temple, that built the temple, is asking himself and asking those who are reading. He's addressing what amounts, I think, to the emptiness of spirituality and worship. Of what looks like worship. Of what looks like spirituality and yet is empty. False sacrifice. Fake faith. Now, we just learned that He told us how dangerous it is last week to do life alone. How we need community. That we can't go on the road of life alone Because sometimes we fall in pits, sometimes we get cold, sometimes people attack us and we can't stand by ourselves. And now he speaks about the community of God. We know there's no temple today where the presence of God is localized or a sacred building where His name is uniquely found. That now by His Spirit, the presence of God dwells in the hearts of His people and Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, and that's not on the golf course, but where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And that's the church. Without doubt, the church is not a building. It is literally an assembly of people. But we do gather in a place in a unique way for unique purposes. We gather in this place, His people, And we are in His presence. But I'm not sure we view it that way. Or Solomon perhaps is not sure. This is the house of the Lord. There are other houses of the Lord where the church is gathering today. 
And the question for us all, and not the question for us to ask of others, is what is my heart disposition as I come here? What is my unseen attitude? What is my expectation of what's going to happen? Solomon speaks about this emptiness of, call it spirituality, call it false religion, call it Christianese. And I think it's probably best described as church under the sun. So we've talked about this idea of under the sun, which is life under the sun is life apart from God. And you think of church under the sun, and in many ways it's church without God. Is that even possible? Oh, you bet your bottom dollar it is. So he's going to be honest about, let's talk about church under the sun. He's going to tell us that there's no meaning going through the motions. That there are many who try to do Christianity apart from Christ. The first thing he warns us to do in the first verses is guard your steps as you go to the house of God. So in our context, it's this place. And the reason he is cautioning us is because of what is found there. You see, we're all made for community, but this side of Eden, Eden, all of community is full of foolishness. All of it. And this shouldn't surprise us, even if we're talking about the church. If you recall in Matthew 13, Jesus Himself, in describing you know, the, the kingdom of God, if you will, the people of God as they're growing in a field, He says the wheat and the weeds grow together in the same field. And it's really hard, He says, to tell them apart. The church is not perfect because people are not perfect. In fact, sometimes the church is weird. Sometimes it's just wayward, and sometimes it's wicked. But Solomon doesn't want us just to avoid the fools at church. Right? He basically says, look, the church is full of fools. And we're like, yeah, that's right, Solomon. I've seen that too. Right? So be careful with that. Because that is true. But that's not what he's... He doesn't want us just to look out. He wants us to look in. He says, yes, right. don't just avoid the fools, but actually avoid being foolish as you approach the presence of God. So let's not talk about you know, whoever, just yourself. How do I approach the presence of God? Because he points out something really interesting. He says, the fool does not know that they're doing evil. In other words, we can be self-deceived hypocrites. As we're looking out like, oh, look at that foolish stuff. Like, well, be careful because the fool never knows they're a fool is what he says. So let's just spend some time in our own self-reflection. But more than anything, he describes what foolishness looks like. And he says, more than anything, fools are hypocrites. This is what Jesus Himself said in Luke 11. He had talked about condemning Pharisees. He both loved and hated Pharisees. Condemned and praised Pharisees. Had compassion and judgment for Pharisees. So he didn't just hang out with the irreligious weirdos. He hung out with the religious ones too. But he condemns the Pharisees in Luke 11 about their appearance of godliness. And he said this, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, use that word, you fools. 
Did he, not he who made the outside, make the inside also? So we're really good at having the outside look pretty and the inside's ugly. Fools are spiritual heroes publicly, but hypocrites privately. As they thank God that they're not like men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and tax collectors. Jesus talked about that too. The guy prays like, oh, thank you God that I'm not like those slimy tax collectors. That kind of appearance. He also talks about fools who dutifully make sacrifices, but their offerings are empty as their hearts. They go through the motions of making false sacrifices. They give the big checks. They serve all kinds of time. But the reason, the motivation for what they're doing or why they're doing it is off. They're hoping in many ways to maybe impress God, redeem themselves, even though, even though Psalm 49 says, no man can ransom himself or give God the price of his life. They are trying to earn their salvation in many ways. Or perhaps earn the approval of men around them. So fools make sacrifices, but they're empty. So it's not that they're not participating. It's not that they're not going through the motions. It's not that they're like not signing up for everything to serve and to do. It's that the reason why they're doing it is off. It's ultimately for themselves. In fact, he says that fools serve faithfully, but they talk frequently. They never shut up, is what he says. He says they fill the air with God talk. And you go, what's God talk? You know what God talk is. Spiritual talk. Christian cliches. They have all the right answers. Foolish churchgoers love religious talk. And I know you're thinking about that other person who you know likes religious talk. But we all have that in us. We all do that. And again, we don't often know we're doing it. Saying stuff, oh, I'll pray for you. Blessings upon you. Or when we're praying, yes, Lord, I echo that. And it's like, what are you doing? And you, you, you're going through the... Maybe that's genuinely who you are and that's not bad, but I think it often isn't genuinely who we are when we're going through the motions and not even thinking about what we're doing. How often do we sing songs? And they're so familiar, you're actually just singing like a robot and you're not actually thinking about the words you're saying. Same kind of deal. Fools enter the house of God talking and not listening. Think about that. Enter the house of God talking and not listening. Thinking often about themselves and others and not God. And then Solomon references dreams. And I have no issue with dreams, but he brings it up several times in somewhat of a negative way. I do believe God can speak and does speak through dreams, but fools tend to live in dreamland. What I mean by that is this is the, the, the fool. So the person that's coming to worship, so the kind of worship that we're experiencing and that they're intending, the fool assumes that what they think and what they feel is what God thinks and feels. Catch that? The fool believes that what they think and what they feel is what God thinks and feels. I've had people say after a service over the years, like, you know, I'm not sure that service was Spirit-filled. And I go, what the snarf does that mean? Like, and they go, what does snarf mean? Like, I don't know. 
But you know what I'm asking. What do you mean? Who determines that? A tickle, a tingle? Like, oh, it's spirit-filled because I'm getting tingles in the back of my neck. Right? They assume that what they think and what they feel, that must be God. God showed up today because I just was feeling X. Maybe. But don't tell me God didn't show up because you didn't feel X. As one commentator wrote this, I thought it was really well said. He said, dreams... Those day and night imaginings and goals are always from God and never indicative of something potentially illusory within them. Fools are first draft people living daily on unmediated speech. Patience is a nuisance. Taking time to think is a waste of time. Plans must be made. Visions enacted. Great things must be done quickly. For them, haste, constant talk, and busying oneself identify the hallmarks of those who should be in the church. We need to act on God. Move on God. God's moving. God's calling. God said. It's a bunch of God talk. It's a bunch of talk and not much listening to God. And Solomon plainly says, look, when this kind of thing increases, it's just vanity. It's just vanity. Now, the worst thing that Solomon sees to emphasize of what fools do is the thing that most of us are guilty of. So most of us will go, well, I don't talk like that. I don't talk all God talky. You know, I'm just listening. I'm quiet. That's not my personality. Okay, I would probably condemn most of us, including myself, in this. One of the most foolish things we do as we gather with God's people to worship is make false promises and pledges. See, behind the fool, there is a pile of unfulfilled promises, half-filled covenants, and lukewarm commitments. They foolishly make promises in the moment, maybe to be liked, maybe to advance themselves, maybe to impress God or to gain the approval of others. I mean, they're excited. Yes, I'll, I'll do that. I'll sign up for that. I'll do that. And then when it comes to bear, they don't actually fulfill it. I think many of us, as we gather as the church on our membership meetings, and one of the first things we do is read our membership covenant, the reason we do that is because I'm not sure many of us ever have read it unless we're at that meeting. We read it once when we take a membership class. Oh yeah, I'll be a member. Like, dude, do you realize what you committed to before God? For those who are married, when's the last time you revisited your vows? Oh, I don't remember my vows. That's a problem. Because you made a covenant commitment to a person. Might want to revisit what that covenant was, especially in the moments where they're a little irritating, right? Where things aren't going well. What was my, okay, well, I covenanted to love you no matter what, as long as you're breathing. I really don't like you right now, but that's no reason to not or to walk away. Because my covenant was actually based on my commitment before God to you, not based on your commitment to me. Ooh, that's, ooh, oh, whoa, hold on. I like to point the finger. You better start pointing like this. So we make these vows, we make these, the fool makes lots of, I'll be there, and they don't show up. And Solomon says, be careful. Don't take that lightly. Don't, and the reaction is like, well, I'm not going to vow anything then, Right? No, he says you should make vows, but man, this is not actually about foolish vows. It's about fools making good vows. 
And he warns us, it's better not to make a vow or a promise or a pledge than it is to make one and not commitment, commit to it or fulfill it. He says, don't let your mouth lead you into sin and make God angry. So the church is full of fools. We're a bunch of fools. Which, if you think about it, if the church is so full of fools, why would anyone want to go? Why would anyone want to gather? That seems like a good reason, like, no thanks. Right? But I find it interesting if you read that Solomon doesn't say, if you go to the house of God, he says, when? When? Knowing it's full of fools. He didn't say, hey, avoid that place. He says, guard yourself as you go in. He's already made the argument that we need community, even if this is the only kind of community that we are able to find. And the truth is, it is. I find it interesting that people go from church to church trying to find a fool-free experience. 